0: Uh, we're going to be talking more about uh, the very heart of the gospel tonight as we open our Bibles to John 18. Uh, we're going to be jumping in in the middle to the toward the end of this chapter as we continue our study through the book of John. I look back at my notes and realize we've been in this study for over a year, um, which uh, COVID prolonged it a little bit, but uh, still we've been, we've spent a lot of time um, in John. We have uh, um, saw a lot, we've heard a lot, we've uh, I think uh, are better followers of Jesus uh, because of this study. I know I am. Uh, this has been um, God's Word. Always, always um, leaves me uh, with my uh, jaw agape, um, just overwhelmed by how good He is and how uh, just revealing and inspiring the Word. The Word is never underestimate uh, what God's Word has to say to us. Um, it's timeless and it has something um, powerful to impart to us every time we open it up. But uh, I know all of us have studied, read, heard John, preached forever and ever. I've thoroughly enjoyed uh, and look forward to spending a few more weeks as we conclude the book. Now, last week, we began to look at chapter 18 um, and what we called the darkest night in all of history. And we began to see it unfold. Uh, we talked about Judas's betrayal. Uh, we spent a whole night talking about Judas's betrayal. Uh, we spent last week talking about Peter's denial but the real darkness of the night was flowing from the religious leaders. Uh, yes, Judas, of course, possessed, but he was leading these uh, religious leaders to Jesus. And their, um, their goal the entire time, for the last few chapters, as we've read, for the, for the last few years of Jesus' ministry, was to put an end to Jesus because he threatened them. He was threatening to their establishment. Uh, they had long dreamed of subduing Jesus, and now they had him in their grasp on a silver platter, and even his very own disciples weren't willing to go to bat for him. Uh, when it push came to shove, they all left him. And even Peter, who we thought at first was defending Jesus, was not really defending Jesus. He was just defending himself and would go on to deny Jesus when it got a little hot. Now, Jesus, of course, had foreseen and God had allowed all these things to take place to set the stage for the day to come. Uh, the darkest night would be followed up by the darkest day. And no, we might would imagine well all that went going on, when is Jesus, and of course many of his followers anticipated, when was Jesus going to put an end to this ambush and reveal his power as they had saw it teased out in miracles? When was he going to end this darkest night and bring the celebration of his kingdom and all the pomp and circumstance? But rather, the darkest night led to the darkest day. And as we said last week, the darkness brought out the worst in everyone. Uh, we see it even from... People like Peter, who we thought would be there to the end. He even said, I'll be there to the end with you, Jesus. Nobody will get in the way. Uh, No one will keep me from defending you. And of course, that didn't prove to be true. So the darkness brought out the worst in everybody to bring out the best of the only one who could save the world. Uh, The darkness would continue to pile on as dawn rolled in and Jesus would continue to attest to who he was and why he had come. But I want you to remember something. And uh, if you haven't been with us, this is, will be important to kind of get us all around the same, uh, around the th- same thoughts today. Uh, John is writing. Uh, John is telling the story, his version, his account. Um, John is writing to tell us, of course, the most historically accurate version of the story as he remembers it, yes. But he's also writing with an agenda. In his prologue, John made it very clear. He wasn't just telling us some unbiased story of Jesus. He was writing as a follower of Jesus, someone who was thoroughly convinced in who Jesus was. He was writing with a very clear and strong agenda as he was presenting Jesus to the world. All truth, of course, but he was writing as someone who had had encountered Jesus, had experienced Jesus, and was left with undeniable uh, confidence uh, of who Jesus was. Uh, Remember back in John 1, in John's prologue, Jesus was introduced to us. John introduced Jesus as God's definitive, final, complete and comprehensive word. That if God had only one thing to say, or if God had one final thing to say, it would be everything that Jesus is, wrapped in flesh, his word was presented to us. If you want to know how God feels, what God's heart is all about, what God's mind is set on, how God feels about you, how God feels about the world, what God's plans are for the world, if you want to know who God is and what his agenda is, look at Jesus. Yes, the whole word is important, but Jesus is God's final, definitive, complete, and comprehensive word as in we will filter everything we read about God hear about God are told about God through Jesus and if it doesn't filter through Jesus it's not accurately telling us anything about God all the word goes through Jesus to give us this truth about God so Jesus is the full declaration of who God is according to John so we need to remember this particularly as we see Jesus arrested on trial you see It's easy to shake our heads and see what John is getting at uh, when he's telling us one of the many narratives of Jesus performing signs and wonders. Uh, when he's giving us the account of Jesus's I am statements, it's easy to say, well, of course, Jesus is the definitive and final, complete, comprehensive, full declaration of God. I mean, look at what he's doing. Look at how he's behaving. Look at the miracles. Look at the signs. Hear his words. So it's easy when Jesus is on the mountain and doing all these great things for us to say, well, absolutely. If I was to think about, if I was to come up with God's definitive word, that's what I would think or hope it to be. But it might not be easy to pick up on that when we see Jesus from a slightly different angle, in a different setting, with a different tone and posture than we've seen him yet. Now also, remember John told us that Jesus was the source of life. All things were made through him, and without him is not anything made that is made. So Jesus is the source of life. In other words, Jesus is I am as a man. So I am Yahweh means the the all existing one, the one who is, the one who creates all things, sustains all things, holds all things together. So Jesus is I am in a body. I am as a man. Again, it's easy to say, well, of course Jesus is when he's demonstrating his I am-ness before diseases and storms and death. But what does that look like when he's on trial? It may be different than we would have anticipated. John also told us that Jesus was light into darkness, light into darkness that could not be overwhelmed or apprehended or diminished. Just not just any light, but one that would always drive out darkness, would never waver and not be and could not be quenched on this darkest of nights and into the darkest of days. You would think if Jesus was the light that John spoke of, that he himself spoke of, That This darkness would be cast out in a minute, but that wasn't the case. And on this day, we see more specifically what kind of light Jesus was and Jesus is. We think about heaven being a place where there is no darkness and where there is illumination from end to end. And the Bible tells us that is what heaven is like. But earth seems to be the opposite. Our universe seems to be default at darkness. And even the brightest lights only exist against the backdrop of black. Now, that might be because of the fall. It could be for some other reason that goes beyond my mind. But think about all the iconic images of space that we've seen that NASA has given us. All those glorious, bright, amazing lights against a backdrop of pitch black darkness. And we marvel at the lights because of how great the darkness is behind them. And the light is so concentrated and so outstanding and stunning, part and course, because of the depth of the black and darkness that's behind it and all around it. Every celestial body, stars, moons, and sun, they stand out in stark contrast to the vast, vapid depth of space. Now, we might be... Attempted to focus on the black backdrop, but we should never underestimate what the star might be producing in spite of its surroundings. And I promise we're going somewhere with this. Because when we think of Jesus being the light, we think of a bright room where there is no darkness at all. But we're about to see him enter a room that is pitch black. Yet his light is not diminished at all. And maybe this was the point all along. Maybe this was the end game he always anticipated. This black backdrop so that his light would be the most potent and maybe even the most blinding to his enemies. Consider the sun. At any moment, in every second, the sun emits 386, yes, that's septillion, 26 zeros after the 386, so I'll let y'all write that down and look that on paper because that's a big number, right? 26 zeros. The sun emits 386 septillion watts of energy every second. That's a lot. Most of that energy goes off into space. But about three quarters of that Only three-quarters of that even makes it to Earth. 174 quadrillion, that's 15 zeros. So, compared to 26, not a lot of zeros. It's a lot still. Quadrillion, 174 quadrillion watts get to Earth. The rest of it is just lost into space. It goes to Mars and Mercury and all those other planets, but what do they need it for? We need it, and when we use it, not that much, though. Now, consider this. God's son placed in the middle of darkness a light shining into darkness and realize he wasn't in an inferior position but rather in an opportune one one that he wanted to be in and planned to be in in this courtroom and a few hours later suspended over a hill when the sun would quit shining in order to make known once and for all that his light was the greatest, the source of all living things. So maybe, when we see Jesus immersed and up against such a dark day, we might fully appreciate the light he brings to our world. Because when we see all hell break loose against God's Son on this Good Friday for us, but on the current, during the, as it played out, it was not a good day at all, But when we see God's Son up against the darkest of backdrops, we might fully appreciate the light He's bringing our world. When we see and feel and hear how He handled the darkness that was coming against Him, we might hear and feel and see the roar of heaven rush past us. And again, John tells the story with an agenda. Remember, we spoiled the story and looked at the end early on in our study. John says, I'm writing this so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, Son of God, and by believing in him, you may have life in his name. So John's telling us, I'm writing this story so that you might be convinced that he is the light of life. And I want you to, when you hear this story, I want you to understand what he is offering you and what only he can offer you. So John wants us to keep that in mind as we read this account. What we might easily and wrongly take as Jesus in a position of weakness or vulnerability, we must realize and seek to appreciate that we're about to read. Not Jesus in a fix. Not Jesus in a place of weakness. No, no. This is less Jesus on trial and more the authorities of Jerusalem and Rome on trial as the sun unleashes its full array of light and power. Jesus and the religious leaders had been building towards this confrontation, the son of God versus the sons of man. Speaking of sons, one more quick fact about the sun, S-U-N. The sun, you might not know this, the sun has a climate. Now, I don't know what the weather channel is like on the sun. I bet it's hard to do the weather there since no one can live there. That's not a funny joke at all, is it? But the sun has a climate. And there are solar storms and there are solar flares. And when a solar flare occurs, get this, 10 octillion, I promise I'm done with all this physics stuff, but I have to do it every once in a while to keep my brain fresh, 10 octillion, 27 zeros, 10 octillion, you didn't even know there's was anything past trillion, did you? I, you know, know most of us don't, right? But there are 10 octillion watts of energy released any given second during a solar storm. That makes a hurricane seem pretty mild. <laughs> the amount of energy released is the equivalent of millions of 100 megaton hydrogen bombs exploding at the same time. I won't tell you how many times that blew up the planet, too many, but we wouldn't know the past the first one. <laughs> don't worry, the solar flares, they don't get this far out into space. This is a picture of the sun. Now, it doesn't look like that when we see it, and hope to God we never see it like that. I think we're in good hands. But when it looks like that, a solar flare is emitting this megaton of energy. Now think of Jesus being on trial as a prepared solar flare wherein a megaton of God's power is about to be released. And oh, that we could just receive a small jolt of it. How different we might be. I think it's a good idea. uh, uh, That's a good idea of what we're about to witness as we read this account of Jesus before Pilate. It's too good. It's too rich for us. We'll find ourselves more often than not thinking, how could he act as if he had ice water flowing in his veins as he faces such turmoil and conflict? Now in the middle of John telling us about Peter's denial, he mentions that Jesus was brought before a kangaroo court of Jewish leaders, an impromptu halfway gathering of the Sanhedrin. Matthew summarizes that middle of the night court session like this. They spit on his face, they struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? So in the middle of this kangaroo trial, they began to mock him, and they began to hurl insults at him. They began to spit on him, and they even go as far to slap him. Now, this just wasn't an instant. This went on all night long because they had to wait for Pilate to open court at 6 a.m., So from around midnight to 6 a.m., they pummel Jesus. And then they get tired and have to go to bed. So they send him to spend the night with all of the thieves and robbers in jail. And of course, the Roman guards, they look forward to seeing new people brought into custody. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking, "Prophesy, who is it that struck you?" Can you imagine this cold-heartedness? And do they even know what they're doing or who they're doing this to? They said many other things against him, blaspheming him. Can you imagine he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, he was silent. What, do you, what could have his motives have been? Why would he react like that? But we've not seen anything yet. Matthew catches us up and says, When the morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the pre- people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. They bound him. They led him. You know why they led him? Because he couldn't walk after six hours of being beaten. And they delivered him over to Pilate, this lanky, unassuming carpenter, a threat. Pilate wouldn't believe it. We're about to see how that encounter goes down. John 18, verse 28, Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium, and it was early in the morning. But they themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but they might eat the Passover. Oh, at least they're being religious about this. Pilate then went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said, If he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. Wink, wink, can you just help us out? They answered and said, or verse 31, Then Pilate said to him, them, You take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And that's when I think Pilate was kind of taken aback, like, Why are y'all here so early? Who is this man? And how, what has made you all so desperate that you want this man dead? It looks like if you would have just hit him a few more times, he might already be dead. 32 says, the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. Of course, God had all this planned out. A few things here. These pieces of work wouldn't even go into Pilate's quarters because they were afraid it would make them ceremonially unclean. All the while dragging a man already bleeding out. They were worried about continuing the Passover celebration, having just sacrificed their lambs the night before, willing to commit this sin against the Lamb of God. Now this sets up a pretty dramatic sequence in which Pilate is always going in and out of his judgment seat, taking, talking to Jesus inside, going to the Jewish leaders outside, in and out of the darkness, in and out of the light. It's such a dramatic sequence. They did not want to get their hands completely dirty, hoping that Pilate would do their dirty work. They didn't want to get Rome's attention. They wanted Rome to help them. Of course, they usually were very much against Rome, but not this time. They knew that Pilate wouldn't care about their religious reasons for wanting Jesus dead, so they had to peg him with a political charge. So they accused him of sedition, treason, insurrection against Rome. And now Pilate has to listen. Because he's put there to keep the peace and to protect Caesar and Caesar's throne and his own throne, of course. Luke tells us in verse 23 of, verse 3 of 23, we found this man misleading our nation, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar because we really love Caesar. You know that, don't you, Pilate? And saying that he himself is a king. Now, Pilate is intrigued. He wants to hear more about this man. So Jesus is brought in for Pilate to interview Verse 33, Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? I mean, he just gets right to the point. I've heard the Jews talk about a Messiah, a king coming one day. Are you the one that they are waiting for? I mean, you've really made these guys mad, so you must not be on their short list of would-be Messiahs. But apparently a lot of people like you, Jesus so are you would, you, would you call yourself the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered and said, are you speaking to you, uh, for yourself about this? Or did others tell you this concerning me? Jesus you know, uh, p- p- uh, goads at Pilate, are you threatened by me like the rest of these are? And maybe you're not threatened by me yet, but when we get through this conversation, you will very much be threatened by me when you find out just what kind of king I am. Pilate answered and said, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Again, you see these two kings trading blows at each other. One very much confident, one very much insecure. Jesus is asked, What have you done? And Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting they tried to fight and I told them to stop actually they would be fighting so that I should not be delivered to the Jews but now my kingdom is not from here and that makes Pilate squinch and think a little harder and he says are you a king then and Jesus said rightly you say rightly that I am a king for this cause I was born for this cause I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth everyone who hears who is of the truth hears my voice Pilate tries to play it off cool and unmoved and says, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in this man. He's a little bit delusional, but he doesn't seem like a threat. But deep down, Pilate was deeply jarred because here was a man that did not fear death, even though death was all around him. Mark tells us that Pilate was amazed that someone before him was not groveling and begging for his life, but actually was very much steering the conversation. I mean, verse 36 is remarkable. One of the most incredible verses of Scripture that Christians don't pay enough attention to. Jesus says to this man who is threatening to, who has the power to kill him, My kingdom is not of this world. You'd think by the behavior of a lot of Christians in this world that this is news to us. You would think that some Christians don't know this or that they don't believe this. But Jesus sure did. He was so composed in a moment like this. This statement is one of those solar flare megaphone words from God in my opinion. The kingdom of God, he says, is not of flesh and blood. It's not of time and place, not like the kingdoms of this world. It is not a kingdom that began or is sustained by violence or invasion, but through humility and fate. Jesus may have seemed to be the least powerful and weakest man in the room this day, but in reality, he was fully in charge. He knew what we as Christians should know, that God's kingdom would not operate like man's. The prophet Daniel juxtaposed the kingdoms of earth with the one from God and for God's people to come. When he prophesied, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. He says in chapter 7, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed i gotta ask you church do you believe that then why do we fight as if this kingdom of god is a flesh and blood time and place brick and mortar thing why do we fear as if it's at risk of being lost or overtaken It's because we blended the kingdom of God with the kingdom of man. We've shut out the word and the example of Jesus and we've lifted up inferior examples in his place. We don't listen to the words of Jesus as he gave on the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the meek, peaceful and peacemaking. We've allowed fear to drive us more than faith. And to what end? To the end that we read and listen to Jesus in this chapter and we wonder what kind of example He is setting for us rather than heeding His example in every season and every situation we find ourselves in. He makes it very clear that the kingdom of God is not of this world. Otherwise, we'd be fighting as if we needed to save it, but there's nothing we have to fight for because God's kingdom is in full control, even when it doesn't look like it. Here we see the king himself bleeding out before the governor of the empire that ruled the world and he stares this man in the eyes and says, I'm not afraid of you. Listen to verse 37. Are you a king then? Pilate is begging for Jesus to stand up and fight him because that's the only language he knows. But Jesus says, I came into this world To do one thing, that's to stare you down and to stare the demon that's controlling you down and show you that this is not the end. For this reason, to testify of God's heart, of God's essence, to shine the light of heaven up close and personal with hell's gates as its backdrop. I don't think it's an overstatement that these two verses of Jesus are a megaton for our ears and our hearts tonight. When Pilate nonchalantly remarks, there is no guilt in him, boy was he spot on. Because Jesus in this moment was purity on display. Meanwhile, because the Jews so feared loss, they were so desperate to fight for their kingdom, they began to cry out for a trade to be made. 39 but you have a custom that I should release someone to you at Passover do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews Pilate knew they didn't want him released they had just turned him over so then they cry out once again saying not this man but Barabbas and John says of course Barabbas was an actual thief he was an actual criminal In this moment, Pilate transforms. He maybe didn't realize it, but the shadow behind him consumed him as he enjoyed, as he reveled in the chance to watch the Jews squirm. Pilate, taken aback by Jesus' foolishness and the Jews' desperation, reveled in his power, his power to make the Jews dance for him, his power to put an end to this peace-talking Messiah, referring to a kingdom that's greater than his. As we close, listen to how this decision is made. Chapter 19, So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him, or flogged him, beat him within an inch of his life. The soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe. And they said, Hail, King of the Jews! They struck him with their hands. Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him clenching his power, reveling in this moment. Jesus comes out wearing the crown of thorns, the purple robe, and Pilate says, Behold the man! What a pitiful excuse of a man. Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! And Pilate, with the applause of man, flow, you know, giving him this energy and this fulfillment, Says you take him and you crucify him. I find no fault in him. And the Jews answered and said we have a law and according to our law he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. And suddenly Pilate turns white as a ghost. He is terrified because Jesus truly was unfazed by his threats. What kind of man could this be? Verse 9, and he went into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. He looked in Jesus' eyes, and he didn't just see fearlessness as he had before. He saw power. He saw the eyes wide up of a man who had absolute, in-control power. And Pilate began to downplay it, but he trembled in the presence of a king. He saw the fire and light of heaven and did not know what to do. Pilate, just a puppet of the devil, now realized he too was on a set of strings. He says, are you not speaking to me? You do not know that I have the power to crucify you, the power to release you insulted and enraged at this point he was ready to wash his hands of such a crazy deranged person but Jesus says you could have no power over against me unless it had been given to you from above therefore the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin Jesus reveals to Pilate that he was actually calling the shots the whole time and though Satan thought he was in charge, he too was on a leash. The leash of darkness had been strung out across that night and day, but Jesus, biding his time, was about to rein it all back in. Because what seemed like a coup against the king of heaven was really just Jesus setting a trap for every accuser from every corner of the earth to point their finger at the only one who was truly innocent. Pilate, just a cipher for the enemy like Judas, Jesus was drawing him out for one final one-on-one showdown. He was going to take it, take this battle to the edge of creation, the gaping wound where sin and death roared loud. And there, he would unleash the full strength of heaven's roar, a solar flare of heaven's light that would cast out darkness forever. As the battle of all time would unfold on a hill called Calvary. Don't miss next week for part two. Let me pray for you. Father, it is a humbling thing to hear this account. It is a truly overwhelming thing to see how you held your composure before all of the enemies of hell as they threw every dart, as they aimed every weapon, Desperate, bloodthirsty, to put an end to your reign. Not knowing, foolishly, not knowing that you were manipulating it the entire time, setting a stage to where you would once and for all put an end to the enemy's power. Sin and death would be taken to a cross, and the light of heaven would put an end. that darkness father thank you thank you so much that we can sit on this side of the story and we can marvel at jesus's glory to know that this kingdom that we are inheriting and that we are headed to is not of flesh and blood it's not for us to fight because it's already been fought for and won we have nothing to fear no one to fear because our king is fully in control God, we thank you. We are humble before you. And we thank you for all that you've done and all that you are going to do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.